Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, or if you see one there uh, in the pew in front of you, would you open it up, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 will provide the basis for our lesson this morning. Um, And if you'll turn there in your Bibles, you'll be in good shape uh, for what it is we're going to study today. Um, Thank you for being here, uh, especially those who are visiting. We're so grateful. We're so grateful for your presence, whether here in person or streaming online, and we hope the things that we study this morning will be beneficial to you. I have always been fascinated by Genesis chapter 3, at least in my adult life and in my own personal study. And what really started that for me was when, uh, in my freshman year of college, a Bible professor said, without Genesis 3, we would have no need for the rest of the Bible. And of course, in a chronological sort of way, of course that is true. But in a theological sense, that's true as well. Without the events that took place in Genesis chapter 3, there would be no reason to bring forth the law, no reason for these types and shadows of Christ and no reason for the sacrifice of Christ Himself. Because they find themselves in the garden with God in perfect fellowship with Him. And so Genesis chapter 3 is where this all starts, the story of the Bible in so many ways. But I want to suggest this morning that it is also, in many ways, a prototype for what temptation looks like, for what sin looks like, and how the Bible... The Bible shows us how the devil is involved in that process, by what the devil, the serpent, says to Eve and her replies to him. The devil knows that the real fight is for our minds and hearts and desires. Actions are a result of winning that battle. Whether we give our minds and hearts and desires to God or we give our minds and hearts and desires to Him. And the devil's primary tool in trying to win our hearts and minds is deceit. And a good liar doesn't always outright lie. The serpent was cunning. And he was cunning in his deception of Eve and of Adam. Ruth Paxson calls it undermining God by malicious propaganda. And certainly that's what the devil is doing here. Bill Reeves, who many of you know or knew called it by one of his favorite words, sophistry. And so this morning, let's consider from Genesis chapter 3, Satan's subtle sophistry. And of course, that's not a word that we use very much today. Merriam-Webster defines sophistry as subtly deceptive reasoning or argumentation. Sophistry is reasoning that seems plausible, at least at first blush, on a superficial level but is actually unsound upon deeper examination. When done intentionally, sophistry is reasoning that intends to mislead and confuse while appearing totally innocent. And that's exactly what the devil wants to do. He wants to make himself out as an angel of light, only here to help and assist us when all the time he is trying to deceive and destroy us. Would you read with me, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve find themselves in the garden that God has given them with all of the the provisions and blessings God has provided. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They had this knowledge of good and evil, and we see God comes into the garden and ultimately kicks them out of the garden and sets uh, angelic creatures at the entrance of the garden so that they would not have access to the tree of life. And we get the first indication that God is going to work out His plan to ultimately redeem man from this sin, this sinful condition in which He finds Himself. But there is so much that we can learn from this text. And I've preached I don't know how many sermons from Genesis chapter 3. But I want to approach it from a different standpoint this morning. The devil does four things in this text besides outright lying to Eve. His sophistry is so subtle and so clever. And like with so many other things that he does toward us and against us, Satan has not changed. And maybe neither have we. So what does the devil seek to do in this passage? Well, first he seeks to ask misleading questions. The, the question that he asked Eve here, it seems so innocent. Just, just a few misplaced words. Has God indeed said? He poses it as a question. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Of course, that's not what God said, but the devil has plausible deniability. Eve says no, and he says, oh, really? That's not what God said? When we go back to what God actually said, I think it's helpful for us. Let's see what God really said, and, and this is important to our understanding of what the devil says, but also what Eve says in response. Go back to chapter 2, if you would, and notice verse 9 first. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord made every tree go grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what was God's command? Let's drop down to verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So we're going to compare what God actually says in verses 16 and 17 with what the devil says, and then later with what Eve says as well. Notice what the devil says, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden, was that what God said? No, of course not. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, he says, with only one exception. 
And these trees that were pleasant to the sight and good for food, that applied to every other tree in the garden along with that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this misleading question by the devil is how he opens. And so often that's how he opens with us as well. But that's not all that he wanted to do. If we look at Eve's response in verses 2 and 3, there are a few slight but important changes between what the Lord God said and what the woman says. First, you notice that God said you may freely eat of all every tree of the garden, with that one exception. And the idea behind that word freely there is, you can eat all you want. You can freely eat. The world is your oyster, or apple, or orange, or banana. You can eat whatever you want in the garden. It's all there before you eat of it freely. Because I'm providing it to you. And yet, when Eve responds to the devil, what does she say? She says very simply, we may eat. She omits the emphatic infinitive freely, saying simply, yeah, we can eat as if it's no big deal, as if it's not an abundant blessing. And her words do not reflect the fullness of what God had given in His blessing. No, her words minimize God's true blessings. But that's not all. Um, We turn again to our text, and we see that sometimes what the devil tries to do is exaggerate God's restrictions and then minimize the consequences that go along with those restrictions. Sometimes we put more on ourselves than God does. Look again in the text. What does the Lord say? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. But what does Eve say? You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve, or maybe Adam as well, they have put more on themselves than what God put on them. God did not specifically restrict in His command that they could not touch the fruit. And sometimes it's okay for us to put up guardrails beyond what the Lord God has said in order to protect ourselves, in order to keep ourselves from going down the path of sin. The problem comes in when we start attributing our restrictions, which are greater than God's, to God Himself. She said, the Lord God has said, you shall not touch it, lest you die. And when we, start, when we start imposing those restrictions on ourselves and others as if they are from God, and we fall into the same camp of the Pharisees, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And even thinking of God's prohibitions as restrictions is in some ways misleading. What is a fence? Why is a fence put up? Well, sometimes a fence is put up to keep something in, to keep your dog in the fence, right? To, to, to protect you or to restrict you in that way. But a lot of times a fence is put up to keep something out, something negative, something bad. Those are protections as well as restrictions. And when it comes to God and the restrictions that He places on us, they are for our good always. They are keeping us from something that is against us, not keeping us from something that is helpful to us or beneficial 
or a blessing. And the devil says God is too restricting. But he also says that the consequences won't be that bad if we break his prohibitions. Now, he comes out and outright lies in verse 4 and says that you will not surely die. But notice again what the woman says in verse 3. God said, you shall surely die, and yet she just says, yeah, you'll die, probably. Not surely die. And her attitude in removing God's dire warning means that her heart is ripe for the devil's lie to hit home. And then finally, I want us to see from this text that the devil offers shortcuts to God's blessings. Read verses 5 and 6 with me again. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. We've made this point already. What else in the garden was good for food and pleasant to the eyes? Every other tree. And the devil's temptations are always just a corruption of the blessings of God. But that's not all. If we think about verse 5, we know, of course, that this is in some ways just a, uh, a partial lie because the devil says, in the, the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Was that true? Uh, check your head this way or that way. Was it true that in the day they ate of it, their eyes were opened? Did they know good and evil? Were they like God in that way? Absolutely. And yet many times I've made the point, when were they more like God? Before they ate the fruit, when they were pure and innocent and in direct and perfect fellowship with Him in the Garden of Eden? Or after, when they knew good and evil and lost all of that and lost access to the tree of life? But perhaps there is more to it than just that idea. Let me also ask this morning, when were they in a better position to grow more like God? Before or after they ate of the fruit? Every day. Can you imagine? Every day they were with God in the garden. Every day they got to know Him better and they became more like Him. Every day they were growing in their relationship with God. Which means that they would have been growing more like God in that relationship. But now the devil is offering a shortcut. Instead of working daily in this relationship to grow more like God over time, now they could become God all at once. Just eat of this tree, he says. Eat of this fruit and you will be like God. No further actions required. And what the devil did is he robbed them. He robbed them of their true opportunity to experience the blessing of fellowship and nearness and likeness to God. I propose this morning that we see these same four things repeated by the devil over and over and over throughout time. We see them repeated in our Bibles and we see them repeated in our own lives. And we often make the connection from Genesis chapter 3, and it's a right and good connection. 
that this tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. And we go over to what John says in 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And we say rightly, these are the same types of temptations, the only kinds of temptations that the devil has always used. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these are the same temptations that the devil used against our Lord as well, because these are the temptations that are in his toolbox. What I want us to do now is turn to our New Testaments. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, please? Matthew chapter 4. After Jesus is baptized by John, he goes into the wilderness led by the Spirit and for 40 days he fasts. And that's when the devil comes, Satan, the adversary, and the accuser comes to tempt him. Read with me beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. You think? Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God... Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, that's the lust of the flesh, isn't it? He was hungry. And the devil offered him this shortcut to fulfill that desire. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Well, that's the pride of life, isn't it? You're different. You're better. And I want you to show everyone that that's the case. Keep reading in verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Well, that's the lust of the eyes, isn't it? He showed him all of those things and said, these things can be yours. This is the appeal that Satan uses, that he makes in our minds and hearts. But I want to make another connection today between the text in Genesis 3 and the text in Matthew 4, that it is not just the appeal with stakes that are much higher, and the stakes were higher with Jesus, right? Eve gave in to temptation, but before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to rectify that and to bring about man's salvation. If Jesus failed, there was no plan B. 
there's another connection to be made, not just to the appeal that he makes, but to the approach that he has. May I suggest in Matthew chapter 4 that these same four things that we see in Genesis chapter 3 are present here with Jesus as well. He asks misleading questions of him. He says, if you are the Son of God, as he came to Eve and said, has God indeed said? He says, okay, are you really the Son of God? He knew it. And Jesus knew it. And yet still he's trying to cast doubt on this occasion. We see that he minimizes God's blessings, doesn't he? He minimizes God's blessings and says, if you are the Son of God... Why don't you have enough to eat? You're the Creator. You're the giver of all things. And of course, that's not what's most important in regards to the blessing that God gives. And Jesus knew that. He knew life wasn't about physical bread. Morris says rightly, a life sustained by food only is a very poor life. God can and will give us our daily bread. And angels came and ministered to Jesus. But He can and He will give us much, much more if we will allow Him. Exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask or think. That's what God wants to give us, not mere bread. And yes, we see with Jesus and His exchange with the devil. The devil is exaggerating God's restrictions and minimizing the consequences that go with those things in verses 5 through 7. He's asking Jesus, why should you be restricted to this physical form? You're the Son of God. Nothing bad will happen to you. God says so. Throw yourself off of this place. And of course, though the angels caught Jesus if if He decided to jump, the greater damage would be done in putting God to the test. And ultimately what we see the devil do is offer shortcuts to God's blessings. For many years, it bothered me what Satan was offering in his last temptation. All these things that you see will be yours if you just fall down and worship me. I've always thought, for many, many years, I thought, why would that be a temptation? Jesus was going to be able to reign over all of that and much, much more. But what was it if not a shortcut? Because he could reign over these things without having to go through the pain and anguish and embarrassment of the cross to get it. And pointedly, this offer, this offer that the devil makes is even more powerful in the, in the Greek. It's in the aorist, which indicates a single act of falling down and worshiping. Satan says, Just do it this once. That's all I'm asking. I'm not asking for a lifetime of devotion. I I just want you to do it one time. One time. Fall down and worship me. And I'll give you everything. Chumley says rightly, Just this once is all that is necessary to wreck a life or destroy God's purpose. And if this is the the approach the devil used the first time against Eve, And if this is the approach that the devil used the most important time against Jesus, doesn't it stand to reason that this is the approach he will use against us? Let's go through these things one more time and see if we can see that together. 
Does the devil ask misleading questions of us? Of course he does. Like so many of the technicalities we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I know, we say to ourselves, God told me to do something else, but did God say not to do this that I want to do? I know God wants me to do this, but did God really say that I have to do it? Or, as Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I know I shouldn't, but you know, I, can't I just repent later if I commit this sin? And all of these questions lead us down the wrong path. The questions that we should ask are, what is God's will? What does He desire? And what pleases Him? Because I love Him. And He has my heart, not the devil. Those are the questions that I should ask. And doesn't the devil seek to minimize God's blessings in our life? Uh, let me ask you, think about this personally. Let's not, let's not talk, talk in the abstract anymore. Now we're getting down to the nitty gritty. I want you to think about your own life. What is bad and difficult in your life right now? Anybody in here have anything at all bad or difficult in your life? Um, you're not raising your hand. May we talk after services because uh, i got to figure out what you're doing, right? But the second question is this. What good and wonderful things do you have in your life right now? And if you, as a faithful Christian, if you can answer the former question easier than you can the latter, then you're falling into the devil's trap. Because the devil wants to act like we don't have blessings. We have abundant blessings physically that we're not even promised. God just gives them to us. But we have a laundry list of spiritual blessings that are the sure promise of our Creator. Let us not fall into the devil's trap. And, and may I read just one of my favorite passages of Scripture to show this? Turn to Romans chapter 8. I said, may I, but you're a captive audience, so I will. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let's, let's read verse 18, and then we'll drop down and read a little bit more later in the chapter. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And though suffering that we go through is very great, Paul went through some great suffering as well and was going through great suffering. And what's his reasoning? What's his justification in these things? Drop down to verse 32, if you would. And speaking of God, Paul says, He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It's a rhetorical question. Answer it. No! None of those things can or should separate us from the love of Christ. As it is written, 
For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And yet even if that were true of us here and now in this country, in this time, we would still have the love of Christ and all the blessings that come with it. How can God not freely give us all things when He has given us His Son? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul says, and let me add Reagan to that, although I carry much less weight, I too am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. So do not minimize God's blessings. That's exactly the road the devil wants you to go down. And so too, the devil wants to exaggerate God's restrictions on us and then Minimize the consequences when we break those restrictions. And maybe especially as we're younger, we think and we look at God's, God's restrictions and without a full understanding perhaps of the consequences of breaking those things, and we say, you know, God's trying to keep me from doing anything fun. To be a Christian, I have to give up all this stuff. I have to give up everything. Well, I need to be willing willing to give up everything, to receive much more in return, as we'll talk about in just a second, and as we just talked about. But look at your life. Are you restricted, truly restricted from anything good that God offers you? We talk about all the things you're going to have to give up in order to be a Christian, in order to serve Jesus. And that's true. There are many things to give up. But are they the best things in life? Are they the lasting things in life? Not in the least. We have to leave many things to be a Christian, but so many better things are only found when we are a Christian. They, we think about Adam and Eve. They gave up the tree, the tree of life so that they could partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God wants to offer us the tree of life if we'll give up a tree that is much, much less. One of my favorite all-time quotes outside of the Bible is from a preacher named Paul Earnhardt in a book he wrote about the Sermon on the Mount called Invitation to a Spiritual Revolution. I want to read this quote to you. In talking about the narrow way that leads to life, as Jesus said, Paul says this. Paul Earnhardt says this. The kingdom's narrow way does not straighten love, does not constrict peace, it does not dry up joy, it does not squeeze out mercy, it does not crush out goodness, it does not strangle hope. All of these things abound on the narrow way. The only thing which the straight gate strips from us is that wickedness which poisons and destroys us. Only the man who still loves that wickedness will feel pressed in and suffocated by the king's highway. Sin is the thief which has come to steal and kill and destroy. But the good shepherd has come that men might have life and have it more abundantly. And finally, in our own lives, the devil offers shortcuts to God's true blessings. Let me just list some examples. 
blessings like love and family and community and belonging and purpose and healing and joy and hope. Those are things that everyone desires. Even those introverts want those things. And yet, the world offers so many shortcuts to those things. We think perhaps especially of sins of a sexual nature. Fornication is a shortcut to that. Pornography is a shortcut to that. But, but I can't help but think of the LGBTQ plus movement. What is the attraction? I can find love and community and family and belonging and purpose and healing and hope. And that's what these precious people are promised by the devil and by the world. And yet those blessings can only really truly be found in God. And the world is not delivering on its promises to these people. Take one sobering metric to show this, suicide. Suicide rates among young people have been on the rise in recent years, and we can talk about all the reasons for that, but according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, young people who identify as gay or bisexual are almost five times as likely to have attempted suicide as their straight peers. Well, we're told that's because they are treated bad and ostracized by people. Bullying, lack of acceptance, fear of coming out, Shame on us if we aren't there for these young people and those things are true of us as Christians. If we aren't there for them with love and biblical answers as they navigate these feelings and this temptation. But I also look at our world and I say, hasn't society's acceptance of these things changed over the last several decades? Whatever your age, has society's acceptance of this behavior changed to be more accepting of it in your lifetime? In mine, it has changed a great, great deal. And if so, if acceptance is the issue, then suicide rates should be getting better as we progress as a society and become more accepting, right? Isn't that what we should see? Well, despite so-called victories and advances in the fight for acceptance of this behavior as a society, a new report from 2021 from the Williams Institute out of UCLA School of Law finds that young gay people today are significantly more likely to have attempted suicide than in previous generations when compared to their friends who do not experience same-sex attraction. More acceptance... and yet more young people taking their own lives. Why? Because it's a shortcut to God's blessings. And what the devil promises always comes with a catch. Beyond suicide, these young people exhibit about twice the level of psychological distress as in previous generations. Why? Because this shortcut to the desired blessings is not a blessing, it's a curse. 
And the refrain comes back to the same old story for those who struggle with these feelings and this temptation. You just need acceptance and everything would be fine. Well, amen. That's exactly what you need. You need the acceptance of God who made you. That's the hole in your heart that you're trying to fill and you can't on your own. That's the acceptance that you need. And let me make an appeal. If you're struggling with this temptation, you can have access to love and family and community and belonging and purpose and healing and joy and hope through the blood of Jesus Christ. In God and in His people, the abundant life that Christ offers. But there are no shortcuts to those blessings. This is the approach that the devil used uses to us, same appeal, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and the same approach with Eve, with Jesus, and with us. But God does not leave us empty-handed, unable to defend ourselves against one who is far stronger than us. How did Jesus respond every time he was tempted by the devil? He responded, quite simply, with it is written. It is written. That's what Jesus did. And He was the one who was behind the things that were written. The Word of God shows us the way things really are. It allows us to to cut through all of the deception of the devil to see reality for what's real. It allows us to see the questions that are misleading. To be reminded of God's true and awesome blessings and promises. To see God's restrictions as beneficial protections for our good always. And to know that God's blessings only come from God in His way and in His time. Because every good and every precious gift comes down from above. From the Father of lights with whom there is no variation turning. And what does God's Word say about this? That should be our question. Whatever it is, whatever temptation, whatever temptation is at our, our feet, whatever lion is outside our door, our question should be, what does God's Word say? What is God's will? And I wonder, what if, what if Eve had just responded by quoting the Lord God and what He commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden we may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we shall not eat, for in the day we eat of it we will surely die. Get behind me, Satan. I trust God. That's what it comes down to. Do I trust God more than I trust the devil? (laughs) That's an easy choice, isn't it? It should be. It should be. And it's a choice all of us have to make, one way or the other. And if Eve had said this, well, I guess there would be no need for the rest of the Bible. But she didn't. And Christ had to come. And thank God He did. And now you and I, though we have fallen prey to the devil's appeals and his approach, though we have fallen into sin, Christ conquers. And we can conquer with Him. Because He came to defeat sin and death that sin brings, and Satan who is behind it all. Won't you come to him even this morning?
put Christ on in baptism that you might know Him and that you might grow more like Him so you go to be with Him in heaven someday. And if we can help you with that today, won't you come now? But together we stand and while we sing. Are you